Today, we will be looking at the doctrine of justification as we find it in Scripture. And we'll be reading a summary of it as we find it in Lord's Day 23, which you can find on page 537 of your book of praise. Now, prior to this, the Catechism has been going through the entire Apostles' Creed step by step. And so after it finishes, in Lord's Day 23, we have the question, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. For only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the last number of months, as we mentioned right before reading this, the last number of months we have been going through the Heidelberg Catechism one step at a time. And we've been dealing with the Apostles' Creed. Each new Lord's Day has been taking us through another portion of what we confess as a holy, Catholic, Catholic being universal, Christian church. This is the heart of the gospel. The basics, the fundamentals, the foundation of what we believe beginning with God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, the Apostles' Creed moves through the work of each person of the Trinity. Most recently, we've looked through the birth of Jesus Christ, followed by his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and his sitting at the right hand of God. And then finally, we looked at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the church, and the forgiveness of sins. Now, after having gone through each section, each different section of the Apostles' Creed, we get the same question that so many of you kids have asked your parents. But why? Why, Dad? Why, Mom? Why? You would think that everything having been explained already, that they would have already had a grasp on it. But you know how kids are. The natural, exp the natural thing that they do is ask what is behind what you are explaining to them. Why? 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 We have talked about the benefits, but the question still arises, what does it help you 
that you believe all this? What's the point? Why? Now, for many of you parents, when you're answering your kids, it might be tempting to answer, because I said so. And there's a time for that response. But thankfully, our catechism doesn't leave us hanging with that answer. Instead, we get one of the richest, most beautiful, life-affirming answers that we find at any point in a catechism. In response to the question, what does it help you that you believe all this? Our catechism summarizes the response of Scripture with the words, In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. Beloved congregation, I bring you the word of God today under the following theme and points. In Christ, I am righteous before God. And we'll see, first of all, I have grievously sinned. Second, yet God. And then finally, the place of faith. So what does it mean to have sinned? To begin with, we need to go back to the very beginning. We need to step back and go right back to Genesis 1 when man was created. What does the Bible say about this? In Genesis 1, we read about the creation and origins of the earth and everything that is in it. The Bible then focuses in specifically on man himself. Genesis 1 verse 27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is followed in verse 31 with the words, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Humanity was created good, very good, in fact. But what happened? Mankind fell. Now, to understand what it means to fall, we need to first understand the height from which we fell. A pastor mentioned not too long ago in response to this, he said, if I tell you that I fell while walking, you wouldn't really think much of it. But, he went on, if I tell you that I fell from 20 feet while rock climbing, then you would respond in a completely different way. You'd be concerned that I might have sustained a serious injury. And that's exactly the point in which we find ourselves today. We need to see the height from which we have fallen to understand the position that we're in today. Man was created good, in the image of God, in true righteousness and holiness. The purpose of man was to be a steward of the earth, taking care of it under God. He was to walk in fellowship with God, knowing him, loving him, and living with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. This was the original state of man. What a beautiful thing this was. I think that sometimes we get so used to the way that things are today that we lose sight of what a precious thing this fellowship with God is. It's like C.S. Lewis described, a little boy who is complacent and content playing with mud pies in a slum because he can't understand what it means to have a holiday at the seashore. The reality of our present situation is so far removed from the full fellowship with God that mankind enjoyed in the Garden of Eden that we can't even begin to comprehend 
what it was like. But that was where we were. We had full and beautiful fellowship with God. We read in Genesis 3 about Adam and Eve hiding after the fall, hiding from the sound of the Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, taking the fact that they fell out of the equation for a moment, we have to think about what it means that God was walking in the garden. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around that kind of fellowship, that God would be there walking with his people. Was man's fellowship with God so close that they could walk as friends with Adam talking with God, asking him questions about this animal and that plant? And Eve asking about the meaning of her existence here on earth and the nature of the stars that were over her head? Who knows? All we know is that whatever was once there, that close fellowship that mankind had with God, that was lost. And we're no more able to conceive of it than someone in a third world country with a dirt floor and grass walls would be able to wrap their minds around a vacation in a five-star hotel in Hawaii. We fell from this great height with God, this, from this great height, this close fellowship with God. We were attached to a life-giving tree and then sinned, breaking ourselves off from the source of our life by our actions. And we didn't stop there. It's an ongoing thing in our lives. The catechism states it in this way. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. Here some of you might stop and say, whoa, wait a second. It's not as bad as all that, is it? But this is exactly what Scripture teaches. Let's take a look, turning to Romans 3, verse 9 for a moment. Romans 3, verse 9. You'll be able to find that on page 1296 of your pew Bible. Just prior to this, Paul has been talking about the benefits that are brought by the law for the Jews at that time. He's been saying it's been beneficial to have the law. But, he writes, what then? Are we better than they, they being the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous. No, not one. And then if we skim ahead, to the second half of verse 22 there for a second. It says, For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is where we're at. Psalm 51 verse 5 shows how this position affects us right from birth. Romans 7 Verse 23 shows how it's a struggle that stays with us throughout our lives. It carries on throughout our lives until our deaths. There we read, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, which is in my body. 
Yet despite these strong words that we find in Scripture, despite the way that Scripture paints this reality, we lose sight of this, don't we? We're like somebody who is dealing with chronic pain. After a while, that pain just becomes part of your life. It just becomes background noise. And you'll notice every now and then if it flares up. But it just becomes part of life for you. We don't see ourselves as particularly sinful. It just becomes part of life for us, even though it wraps itself around our entire life just in the same way that we would have with chronic pain. It affects your entire life. In fact, not only do we not see ourselves as particularly sinful, we often fall into the trap of seeing ourselves as better off than the person who is beside us, like that Pharisee. Sin becomes this really bad thing that other people do, and we don't. Take, for example, the moment that an elder suggests that someone else is living in sin. What's the immediate reaction? If we know and we like that other person, we step back and suggest that perhaps they're speaking a little bit too strongly. We don't want to slap a label on them. There's a deep stigma that's attached to words living in sin, and you don't want that attached to a friend or a loved one. But consider why this is so. The main reason that we react so strongly to someone calling out actions in someone else's life as sin, even though we might fully agree that those actions are sinful, if we take a step back for a moment, the main reason that we don't do that is because we don't recognize the depth and the all-encompassing nature of sin as a whole. For ourselves, we have this legalistic box that we believe that as long as we live in that, as long as I'm a good Canadian Reformed person and I'm in that box, then I'm okay. I'm being obedient. We've lost the understanding of the sinfulness of sin. Each and every one of us is a sinner. And when calling out sin becomes something to be stigmatized, instead of recognized as a call of love, we should be concerned. The fact that it is a call for someone to get help, to use whatever resources are available to them, to aid them in their flight of sin, to reestablish Christ at the center of their lives, this fact needs to be our focus. We must recognize that if we call out sin, we need to be consistent. And we need to fall, and if it's calling out sin in someone else, we need to follow up in aiding that person as well. Moreover, we need to be consistent in recognizing sin in our own lives. Recognizing how broad of a net it stretches, how deep its roots go. When we look back to Adam's full, true, and beautiful fellowship with God and the perfection in which he lived, it's like someone, again, suffering with that chronic pain who's able to look back and think a little bit about how life was when he was or she was still free and 
not dealing with this constant pain. Then we look and we see the reflection of ourselves. We see our current state, that we are branches that have broken themselves off from a life-giving tree, unable to reattach themselves, and lying on the ground, withering. Recognize the height from which you've fallen. Recognize the great need in your life for a savior. Examine your lives and confess where in them you have grievously sinned. Because that is the state in which you will find yourself naturally. Even your best works are still an echo of what they could and should be. An echo that reflect the words, how great my sins and misery are. Who will rescue me from this body of death? This leads us into our second point. Having done this, however, you're not to remain there. You are not to wallow in your sin and misery. Recognize your rebellion. Recognize your need. And then begin to move on. Move on, you might say. Isn't that brushing it under the rug? If not for the very next words that we find here, that might very well be true. But because of the very next words we read, we know that to be a lie. We do not brush it under the rug. What a joy and relief it is to see what follows. The next words we read are, Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of God. We don't brush our sin out under the rug. We move on from our state of misery to a state of joy. We move on in the recognition of what has happened. The words, yet God. Yet God. Those are the two most beautiful words that we can find in the English language. Those words together. Yet God. There is no greater expression of our inability and of God's power. Yet, God, there is no greater expression of love than this. These two words are a great summary of John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. Nothing that man could have said or offered or done could have brought this to pass. Yet, God. It was purely God's love, purely God's mercy that brought this free offer of grace to pass. There are perhaps some among you that struggle with a sin from times gone by. It's, there's, there's something that's in your past. It's in your history, maybe five years ago, maybe 50 years ago. And maybe it's something that no one else knows about, and it burdens you. It brings you sorrow and bitterness, and it affects the relationships that you have with those around you, making you push away any who get too close. How am I worthy, you think? I don't deserve to be loved. 
But there's the rub, isn't it? At the end of the day, none of us deserve anything. Not a single one of us merits anything. We are no better than that tax collector that Jesus spoke about. Not even being able to face heaven. All we can do is beat our chests in sorrow and cry out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. If this is your situation, brothers and sisters, these words, yet God, are words of freedom to you. Yes, you do not deserve forgiveness. You are right. You do not deserve God's love. Yet, God, without any merit of our own, out of mere grace, imputes to you the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ if only you accept this gift with a believing heart. As he has promised in 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't deserve this. Which is what makes this all the more beautiful, all the more fulfilling and amazing. If you confess your sins with a truly repentant heart, God will forgive. Not because you deserve it. Not because you are so great. But because he imputes to you the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And he has taken your sin and imputed it to Christ, laid it upon Christ. This is our third point. When we speak about faith, the place of faith, we also need to speak about the word imputes. Why? Well, let's take a look at Romans 4. Verse 4 to 8 for a moment. Page 12, uh, 1296. Your pew Bible. Romans 4, starting at verse 4. It's right at the bottom corner there. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. When someone imputes something to someone else, you kids might be wondering what that word is. Well, it means that they are saying that it belongs to someone else. That's where the source is. It means the person is saying, these actions come from that root. He did it. So how does this tie into sin, to righteousness, and to faith? What the Holy Spirit is telling us here in Romans is that man is sinful. 
And that any mercy given to him is not a wage, it's not earned by his work, but it is grace given by God. When we have faith, when we believe in Jesus Christ, believing who he is, believing in what he has done, and putting our hope in him alone, we have a righteousness that is apart from works, a righteousness that is imputed to ourselves. When we truly confess in our hearts, without Jesus, nothing God looks at us and says, righteousness, to be specific, the righteousness of Christ, has its source in you. And then he looks at Christ and he says, the sin is imputed to you. It's laid on you, but you have paid it in full. It's not something we can earn. This makes it very clear It's not a wage. A wage would mean that we've done something. God owes us something in response, and therefore there's a debt that God must pay. So even our faith, then, is not something that earns us salvation. He says there is nothing that we can call a wage. So even the faith by which this becomes true is not something we pay with. Now, for those of you who remember, we touched down on this very point a few weeks ago. There we discussed how faith is like a conduit, a pipe by which the blessings of God flow to us, not something by which we earn something. We just read how it isn't earned. It's a gift of grace. Likewise, this Romans passage says, yes, we get the righteousness of Christ by faith, but it is not owed to us. The righteousness that we receive is not a wage that we get from faith. It's not based on how strong our faith is. The stronger our faith is, the more we get. No, it's a gift. So how does that work? The Catechism summarizes it beautifully, saying, why do you say that you're righteous by faith? Not that I'm acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction Righteousness and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. Again, not our faith, but the righteousness of Christ that is ours. That's how we're righteous before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. By faith, we receive what God gives us. It's the open, empty hand of the beggar. And anything we receive is a gift of grace. What an amazing gift this is, brothers and sisters. We don't deserve to be loved. We don't deserve to be forgiven. If that's running through our heads, then we can say, yes, amen, that is true. And yet God, who so loved the world that he gave his only son to bear the weight of that sin. He is the one who forgives us. He is the one that freely, freely gives. He bore the burden because he loves his people so that whoever believes in Jesus Christ should not perish but will have eternal life. Amen.